Good morning. morning. This morning we are continuing our series, Joseph's Story. This is now part two of that series. We began it last week, and we said last week that this series would be based on Genesis chapter 37 through 50 in the Old Testament. That's where we find Joseph's story. We also said it would be based on the curriculum that is used at TRAC. So TRAC is spelled T-R-A-C. It stands for Teen Reach Adventure Camp, and it is a camp that our church sponsors every single summer for kids that are in the foster care system. Track is the one that's split up with boys and girls, and it's um, uh, middle school and high school uh, boys, and then middle school and high school girls. And so these are um, kids either in foster care or at some point they were. Pretty much there was some sort of abuse or neglect or abandonment. And so we put on a camp for them every single summer. For those of you that are new here, you didn't know that. Well, now you know. We do that. And so this is where this was first taught. And so as I go along in this sermon, you'll probably be able to notice that this teaching that I'm giving you was originally, like, it was angled... Um, toward its audience, and then it was an audience that had that in common, okay, Fo- that, like the foster care system in common. You might be able to tell that as I preach through this passage. Um, if you have your Bible with you, you can turn to Genesis chapter 39 at this time. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, and so we're going to start reading in verse 1. Genesis chapter 39, starting in verse 1, this is what it says. It says, Now Joseph had been taken to Egypt. An Egyptian named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there. So we see that um, what our story picks up today right where it left off last week in that uh, Joseph is a slave in Egypt, right? Last week we read that he was taken off to Egypt as a slave, and here he is a slave in Egypt. He has been purchased by a man named Potiphar. We said last week that Joseph was born into a dysfunctional family. His brothers hated him. They wanted to kill him. They ultimately sold him into slavery. And that's why he's in the predicament that he's in at the point of the story that we are at. At this point of the story, he is probably around 17 years old. Okay. The reason that I say that is, if you remember last week, the story of the, the portion of the story that we learned last week, it flat out said he was 17 years old. Do you remember that? The story said he was 17 years old. And the only thing that happened last week, if you missed it, like plot-wise, what happened is he was 17, and then he received a multicolored robe, he had two dreams, and then he was sold into slavery, okay? I don't think that required a whole lot of time to pass, okay? You can get handed a robe pretty quick. Uh, The two dreams, assume they happened on two different nights. Maybe that took two days to happen, okay? And then you have his brothers selling him into slavery. So all of that could have happened in one week. He is probably still about 17 years old at this point. I don't know for sure the timeline in Genesis 37, but I'm guessing he's about 17, maybe 18 at this point in the story. And now we find him against his will, living in a new house, surrounded by a bunch of strangers, And this is something that the original group of people that I preached to could very much relate to. Um, Joseph was, think about this, removed from his home, right? He was removed from his family. He didn't want to. He was removed from his family, and he was placed into a new household full of total strangers. So the kids at camp could very much relate to this story. And maybe some of you can relate to some of what Joseph is going through. Have any of you ever had to move suddenly? Like there was a situation and then something happened and you had to move and we got to go live in a whole other place. And maybe there wasn't even a time to get all of your stuff to go with you. And you're like, man, it stinks that I had to leave that behind. We had to move so fast. Have any of you had to start all over again in a new place where you felt like things were established, then you moved to a whole new place and it's like, wow, I feel like I'm starting everything all over again and I don't want to. 
Have any of you ever been surrounded by a group of people that you had to interact with and you didn't get to pick any of them? Okay, that's a big yes to that one, I suppose. Um, How many of you have been in a situation where all the people around you speak a different language and you're the one going, I don't know what anybody's saying. This is awful. Every day, this is awful, right? Because that's what's happening. He has to learn a new language all of a sudden. So I want you to think about all that because some of you have had some of these experiences and I want you to imagine all of these experiences combined. That's what Joseph's experience is here. He's in a new house surrounded by new people. He is living in a new country. Everyone around him is speaking a new language that he has to learn really fast. He is now eating new foods. He is dealing with new customs. He's wearing new clothes. He is now surrounded by a new religion, right? No one around him believes in the God that his family taught him about. And here he is. This would be a very tough situation for a 17-year-old. This would be a very tough situation for anybody. And then look at Genesis 39, verse 2. This is the very next verse after the one I just read to you where it said Potiphar bought him. Then here's the next verse. The Lord was with Joseph. What? In the midst of this difficulty, it says the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man serving in the household of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made everything he did successful... Joseph found favor in his master's sight and became his personal attendant. It seems to me throughout the story, you'll see that Joseph continues to follow the God of his fathers, I think as best as he can in his new situation. It doesn't talk about a whole lot, but it does talk in this passage multiple times about how the Lord is with him. Um, Later on, I think it's in verse nine, which we haven't gotten to yet. It talks about the fact that he wanted to obey God. There was something that he was tempted to do that was wicked. And he said, I can't do that. God would not want me to do that. Later on in the story, when we get to the point where he's interpreting dreams, he gives the glory to God. He says, God is the one that's able to interpret dreams. He doesn't take that onto himself. So it seems that Joseph continues to follow the God of his fathers in his new environment. And I think at one point we can make in this story, and you'll see this multiple times, but even just in the two verses I read to you, it said it twice, and then it's coming up even more times. It says, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. So I think one point that can be made at this part of the story is, Even though Joseph was in a terrible situation, God had not abandoned him. Do you see that in the story? Because that's different than what most of us believe. I feel like there are a lot of times where our situation gets bad, circumstances are awful, and we assume, well, God must have left. God must be forsaking me, right? God must, maybe he was with me when things are good, but now they're not good. Where are you, God? And I just want you to see in this story, Joseph's in the middle of the most difficult stuff he's ever dealt with, and it says the Lord was with him. God had not abandoned him. The Lord was with him in the difficult situation. And so here's the next verse. We're in the middle of verse four. Potiphar also put him in charge of his household and placed all that he owned under his authority. From that time, he put him in charge, sorry, from the time that he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house because of Joseph. The Lord's blessing was on all that he owned in his house and in his fields. He left all that he owned under Joseph's authority. He did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. It seems that God blessed Joseph and even blessed the people around him, including Potiphar, and blessed him in such a way as to make this difficult situation as good as it could be. Like God blessed him to the point that he made a bad situation as good as it could be without taking him out of the situation. 
But then there's a, a huge turn in the story in the middle of verse six. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. Oh, that's great. That seems like a blessing. You'll see. Not so much in this case. Verse seven, after some time, his master's wife looked longingly at Joseph and said, sleep with me. But he refused. Look, he said to his master's wife, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in his house. He has put all that he owns under my authority. No one in this house is greater than I am. He has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. So how could I do such a great evil and sin against God? This is an interesting verse. It seems to me Joseph believed that doing sexual things with Mrs. Potiphar would be a sin. Not only would it be a sin, it seems to me, based on what he says, he believes that it would have been a sin against Mr. Potiphar and it would have been a sin against God. Do you see that? Right? Why would I do such an evil and sin against God? We live in a world where a lot of people say that it is fine to do sexual things with just about whoever you want. The Bible teaches that sexual behaviors are only supposed to happen between a man and a woman who are married to each other. It looks like Joseph understood and believed at least some of that when he said, how could I do such a great evil and sin against God, right? Not just this wouldn't be good for my career. Like he was saying, there is a God who has some sort of rules, some sort of boundaries, some sort of design for this and doing what you're proposing would be wrong. So verse 10, although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her. Now, one day he went into the house to do his work and none of the household servants were there. She grabbed him by his garment and said, sleep with me. But leaving his garment in her hand, he escaped and ran outside. Joseph is a good role model for us in that when there was a sexual temptation, he ran from it. He didn't stroll from it. He didn't walk away from it. He didn't back away from it. He ran away from this situation. And maybe this part of the story can serve as a reminder, especially to those of us in this room who say that we know God and we do really want to please God. If there is a time when you are tempted to do sexual things with someone you're not married to, or even a temptation to enjoy sexual sin, like on your phone, it's good to get away from those situations as soon as you can, as quickly as you can. He runs away in this case. Now look at verse 16. She put Joseph's garment beside her until his master came home. Then she told him the same story, same story meaning that she had told the other servants earlier. The Hebrew slave you brought to us came to make a fool of me. You can tell by the context, she basically accuses him of trying to rape her. But when I screamed for help, he left his garment with me and ran outside. Is she telling a lie here? Yes, she is. Verse 19, when his master heard the story his wife told him, these are the things your slave did to me, he was furious and had him thrown into prison where the king's prisoners were confined. So Joseph was there in prison. What a terrible part of the story. Joseph did the right thing and got punished for it. Do you see that? I think some people don't think that is a thing. And you need to know that is definitely a thing. People go, well, if you just do the right thing, everything will turn out okay. That is not true, okay? Joseph did the right thing. He got punished for it. We do need to know that that happens. Joseph's in a bad situation 
And at this point, the situation gets even worse and it's not his fault. He hasn't done anything wrong. And then look at the next verse. This is, almost seems ridiculous if you, if you really don't know God. Look at this, Genesis 39, 21. But the Lord was with Joseph. This is right after Joseph was in prison. Here's the next sentence. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. What? It does not seem like the Lord is with him. It does not seem like the Lord is being kind to him. But that's what it says. Now, what's it referring to? It's referring to what it says next. The Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. Now look at the rest. He granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. The warden put all the prisoners who were in the prison under Joseph's authority. And he was responsible for everything that was done there. The warden did not bother with anything under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him and the Lord made everything he did successful. I want you to notice God does the same thing again. He does not immediately remove Joseph from the bad situation, but he blesses Joseph in the midst of the difficult situation. Now, I'm going to go ahead and summarize the next two chapters without reading them. Today, we're covering Genesis 39, 40, 41. That seems crazy, but we're doing it. And I'm going to go ahead and summarize these next two chapters of what happens next. Joseph is in prison, and there are two other prisoners that are there. I'm sure there's lots of other prisoners there, but two that are particular characters in the story. If you remember, at the end of chapter 39, it said that the prison that Joseph was placed in was the prison that the king's prisoners were held in. So the king, which would be the pharaoh of Egypt, when I guess when he threw people in prison, there was a special like high-level prison that, for his prisoners, and that's the one that Joseph was in. So Joseph meets these people who previously worked for pharaoh. Um, one of them is the cupbearer, and the other one is the baker. And so Pharaoh's baker and Pharaoh's cupbearer are there in prison with jo Joseph. I don't know how much time passes, but at some point, they both have a, a dream. I mean, I guess they didn't have the same dream. One guy had a dream, another guy had a dream, but they both had these two dreams, one dream for each guy, on the same night. So they woke up the next morning, each talking about these dreams that they had, and they're talking about it in the prison, and Joseph says, you know, uh, God knows what dreams are all about. And he says, tell me your dreams. And he interprets the dream of the Pharaoh's cupbearer and the Pharaoh's baker. So the cupbearer says, okay, I'll tell you my dream. There were three branches that had grapes on them. And in my dream, I was there like squeezing the grapes that came from these branches into a cup for Pharaoh. And Joseph says, I'll tell you what the dream means. It means you're going to be restored to your former glory. You're going to go back into your, like right now you're in prison, but not anymore. In three days, that's what the three branches stand for. The three branches stand for three days. Three days from now, you will no longer be imprisoned. You will have your job back. So things stink right now, I get that. But in three days, you will be out of here and you will be back employed by Pharaoh. So I'm sure he was very happy to hear that. And then the baker hears that it's like a positive thing. And it's like, well, let me tell you about my dream. And so the baker says, I had a dream that I had these baskets of bread that were on my head. I was balancing three baskets on top of my head and then there were these birds that were eating bread out of the top basket. What does that mean? And Joseph apparently goes, hmm, yours is not a good one. <laughs> the three baskets also refer to three days. Three days from now, you're gonna be executed. So the cupbearer, his head will be lifted in the sense that he will be promoted back to his previous position. Your head will be lifted off of your body. You will be dead three days from now, which I'm sure he's going, wait, why does he get that and I get this? But Joseph's not, you know, not the one that writes the mail. He's just delivering it here. He's saying, this is, this is what's happening in three days. Now, I don't know if the baker, I don't know how seriously he took him. Like, I don't know if he was panicking for the next three days, thinking these are the last three days of my life. Or if he's sitting there thinking, well, I don't know if that's going to come true. This is just some dude in prison with me. I don't know if what he says is true. But three days later, 
exactly what Joseph said would happen happens. Three days later, the cupbearer is called out of the prison and restored back to his position. And on that same day, the baker is executed. Now, Joseph was so confident that his interpretations were correct, like he knew it was going to happen. And so he asked the cupbearer, hey, since you are going to be restored in three days, like since I know for sure you are going to have Pharaoh's ear next week, would you please tell him about me? Would you please get me out of here? I'm a Hebrew who was essentially kidnapped and brought here. I shouldn't even be in this country. I have not broken this country's laws, and yet I'm in this prison. Like the whole thing is unjust. You, you are about to be in the presence of the most powerful man in the country. Could you please tell him my story? Could you please get me out of here? Well, the cupbearer, three days later, is restored to his position, but he forget at least on day one, he doesn't tell Pharaoh about Joseph, and he doesn't do it on day two, and he doesn't do it on day three, and he doesn't do it on day four. And in fact, he forgets about Joseph, and two years go by. And then Pharaoh has apparently some vivid, disturbing dreams and starts talking about them to the people of his court. I had these dreams, I don't know what they mean. I need someone to interpret them. Nobody was able to interpret them, but Pharaoh's talking about these dreams. And at that point, the cupbearer goes, oh, like it jogs his memory. I know a guy. I know a guy. I, Pharaoh, you may not, like, so two years ago, I met this guy. Remember two years ago, you put me in prison for a little while, not, not faulting you, not, not getting not. I understand you got to do what you got to do. But if you remember two years ago, you had me in prison for a little while and there was a guy in there who can interpret dreams. Like he told me that I would be restored to this position. He said exactly what day it would happen. It happened just like he said it would. And the Pharaoh said, well, then get me that guy so he can tell me what my dreams mean. So they get Joseph out of the prison and they bring him up to the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh says, will you tell me what my dreams mean? Joseph specifically says, it is not me. It is God who is able to tell you what the dreams mean. And then he tells them what the dreams mean. So... Uh, Pharaoh shares with him two dreams that he had. Uh, he said, well, the first dream I had was that there were seven like beautiful, healthy looking cows, like just really like big, like you want to make them into steak kind of cows, beautiful cows. And then there were seven ugly, sickly, look like they're going to tip over and die cows. And the little sickly looking cows went and ate the seven good looking cows, okay, which can happen in a dream, okay? And that's what happened. The seven little ones all ate the fat, healthy cows. And then another dream, and he said it was pretty much kind of the same thing, except it was with uh, crops. It was heads of grain. They were like beautiful ones that were just like, they're all healthy and they're like, oh, I want to make some bread out of that. And then there were these sickly looking dying ones and the, and the sickly looking dying ones, there were seven heads of grain that were all gross and they ate seven of the good ones, which again can happen in a dream. And so he tells this to Joseph. And Joseph says... God is telling you what's going to happen in the future. I'll tell you exactly what the dreams mean. First of all, they're not two different dreams. They're all the same thing, okay? It's seven, the seven good and the seven bad is seven good years and seven bad years. There are going to be seven good years. The economy here in Egypt is going to be booming for seven years. Going to be plenty of food, going to be plenty of meat, going to be plenty of bread, going to be plenty of crops. Everybody's going to be, it's just going to be wonderful for seven years, and then at the end of the seven years, there's going to be a second seven-year period. That's the sickly cows and the sickly grain. It's going to be terrible. There's going to be not enough food. There's going to be skinny animals and, and plants that are dying. Everything's going to go super bad for a long time. Those seven years are going to be so bad, and the poverty and the starvation and all that is going to be so bad that people are going to forget the, se the seven good years. They will not even remember it was ever good. It'll be so bad for seven years. That's what's going to happen. God is letting you know ahead of time that's what's coming. And then he tells the Pharaoh, you need to find a guy who will oversee 
saving up the extra during the good years so that your country can survive the seven bad years. And Pharaoh says, I found the guy. You're the guy. This is chapter 41, verse 39. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one as intelligent and as wise as you are, right? You've got insider information. I can't find someone smarter than the one who has extra information from God. No one is as intelligent and as wise as you are. You will be over my house and all my people will obey your commands. Only with regard to the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, see, I am placing you over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him with fine linen garments and placed a gold chain around his neck. And skipping to verse 46, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Joseph left Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout the land of Egypt. And he traveled throughout the land of Egypt in order to do what was just talked about, to go to all the different places and set up the saving of the extra for the seven bad years that were coming. <laughs> He's in a much better position. Is that an understatement? Yeah, he's in a much better position at this point. This is incredible what has happened to him. He is now the second most powerful person in one of the most powerful nations on the planet. This is an incredible turnaround. He's in a much better position in life. This is, of course, better than being in prison. This is, of course, better than working for Potiphar. But I think... This is even better than the life he had with his family beforehand, right? This is not just better than the difficult decision, the difficult circumstances that he had recently been in. This was the best situation of his whole life. This was better than the life he had with his family because if you remember in the beginning of his story, he was the youngest of a whole bunch of brothers who hated him and wanted him to be dead. He is now the second highest ranked official in the most powerful country, maybe on the earth at that time. Probably the, 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 the second highest ranked official of, of all the countries he knew about, like in that area. Egypt was like, this was when Egypt was a very, very powerful country um, as far as like what was happening on the globe at the time. And, and during the seven bad years, they would have been an incre incredibly influential country as the, as the only place that had food around. So he becomes an incredibly powerful person in an incredibly powerful nation, the second highest ranked official. The closest equivalent I can think of is he, he became vice president of the United States is what happened. And even that might even be like a little bit of an understatement because when you, if you read the rest of the story and you see the people that are bowing down to him and the fact that they're able to just throw people in prison and kill people whenever they want without a trial, you might realize he is more powerful than the vice president of the United States but I'm gonna go ahead and call him the vice president of Egypt because that's the closest term I can think of. He is promoted very highly and you can see at this point, God definitely brought good out of a bad situation. And so all of this matches with the verse that we began with last week. Do you remember the verse we began with last week? Romans 8:28. Let me reread it for you. This is the first verse we read in this series. We know, this is Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. We know that all things, slavery things, prison things, family betraying you things, false accusation things, people forgetting about you for two years things. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. The vice presidency in this case of those who love God those who are called according to his purpose, Joseph in this case. 
So the one thing I, well, one of the things I wanted to leave you with is the importance of trusting God in the middle of your story. See, it's easy to get to the point where all things have worked for the good. It's easy to get to Genesis chapter 41, which we did in this series really fast. I mean, we went from he's a slave to he's in prison to he's the vice president in like 20 minutes, okay? And so it's easy to get to the end and then go, oh yeah, yeah, we need to trust God. Look what he does. But it's important for you to trust God before you get to the end of the story, to trust God in the middle of the story while things are still bad. That's what Joseph did in this story. Joseph believed in God, right? He's the one who said, God is the one who gives me these, the ability to interpret these dreams. Joseph obeyed God, right? He said, I cannot sleep with you, Mrs. Potiphar, because this would be a wicked thing to do because of what God said. Joseph believed in God and obeyed God even during the difficult times. Things did get better for Joseph, but they were tough for a long time. It's, I think sometimes when we read through this, it's easiest for to go, oh yeah, yeah, but things got better. Yeah, I mean, things were difficult for Joseph for, I mean, about, I guess about 20 minutes there, it was difficult. But that's just because that's how long it took for us to get through the story. He didn't live through it that fast. Genesis 37 verse two clocks Joseph in at 17 years old. Genesis 41 verse 46 lists him at 30 years old. Did you catch that? If you do the math, you can figure out it was approximately 13 difficult years. It's important to believe in God and obey God even during long stretches of difficulty. Now, it might sound like we could just wrap up right now because that doesn't that sound like a just, hmm, and that's the moral of the story. Let's close in prayer. <clears throat> I think we could wrap up the whole lesson right now with just an exhortation for you to keep being faithful. But there is one last thing we've got to cover. Feels good to end it there, but we've got to cover something really big. And so I got to bring this up. This is really important for you to consider as we try to figure out how, what this story has to do with our life. So here's the truth. You, want it? you ready for it? Not everybody gets to be vice president. Is that true? Yes. Not everybody gets to be vice president. The message of the story of Joseph cannot be, like the takeaway for us cannot be, be faithful to God during hard times, and then after approximately 13 years, you will become the vice president. <laughs> that cannot be the point because that doesn't happen to everybody, right? It couldn't happen to everybody. There aren't enough vice presidencies available for that to happen to everybody. And if you look around in your own life and you look around at people around, you will see that there's some people whose lives are difficult and they trust God and they're faithful to him and they obey him and their life is difficult for longer than 13 years. You will see some people who trust God and their life is difficult their whole life and then they die. And there isn't any obvious promotion or blessing here on earth. So how can Romans 8.28 say all things will work out for the good of those who love God? Okay, we look at the verse and we can, in fact, go ahead and put it back up there. We can look at the verse and we could go, well, certainly this verse applied to Joseph. Yeah, all things work together for him and he loved God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, but, but this verse does, isn't about Joseph. This is in the New Testament and this verse is, is, is written as if this could be true for anybody who loves God and is called according to his purpose. How in the world can Romans 8.28 say all things will work out for good for those who love God? Yes, in the case of Joseph, but, but anybody? Us? How can Romans 28 make that promise? And the answer to that question, like in order to answer that question, we've got to proclaim 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to do that in two ways. Um, first is I'm going to show you a video that we showed at camp. Uh, so the, this, this video is going to present the gospel, then afterwards I'm going to present the gospel in my own words. This video is by a musician and poet and rapper who is from out of the Los Angeles area. His stage name is Propaganda, okay? His real name's like Jason. But anyway, but, but, <laughs> but he, he goes by Propaganda, and he, I'm going to just show you like th this poem that he performs where he explains the gospel. We showed it at camp to the kids. I'm going to show it to you. And then afterwards, I'm going to explain the gospel in my own words. But go ahead and if you would, play that video at this time and pay attention. It's the full story of life crushed into four minutes. The entirety of humanity in the palm of your hand crushed into one sentence. Listen, it's intense, right? God, our sins, paying everyone life. The greatest story ever told that's hardly ever told. God. Yes, God, the maker and giver of life. And by life, I mean any and all manner and substance, seen and unseen, what can and can be touched, thoughts, image, emotions, love, atoms, and oceans, God. All of it is handiwork, one of which is masterpiece, made so uniquely that angels look curiously. The one thing in creation that was made with his imagery, the concept so cold. It's the reason I stay bold, how God breathed in a man and he became a living soul. Formed with the intent of being infinitely, intimately fond. Creator and creation held an eternal bond. And it was placed in perfect paradise till something went wrong. A species got deceived and started lusting for his job and odd list of complaints. As if the system ain't working and used that same breath he graciously gave us to curse him. And that sin seed spread through our soul's genome. And by nature of your nature, your species, you participated in the mutiny, our, yes, our sins. It's nature inherited, black in the human heart. It was over before it started. Deceived from day one and led away by our own lust. There's not a religion in the world that doesn't agree that something's wrong with us. The question is, what is it and how do we fix it? Are we eternally separated from a God that may or may not have existed? But that's another subject. Let's keep grinding besides trying to prove God is like defending a lion, homie. It'll need your help. Just unlock the cage. Let's move on on how our debt can be paid. Short and sweet, the problem is sin. Yes, sin. It's a cancer, an asthma, choking out our life force, forcing separation from a perfect and holy God. And the only way to get back is to get back to perfection, but silly us. Trying to pass the course of life without referring to a syllabus. This is us. Keep up your good deeds. Chant, pray, meditate. But all of that, of course, is spraying cologne on a corpse. Or you could choose to ignore it as if something don't stink. It's like stepping in dog poop and refusing to wipe your shoe, but all of that ends with how good is good enough. Take your silly list of good deeds and line them up against perfection, good luck. That's life past your pay grade. The cost of your soul, you ain't got a big enough piggy bank, but you could give it a shot. But I suggest you throw away the list, cause even your good acts are an extension of your selfishness. But here's where it gets interesting. I hope you're closely listening. Please don't get it twisted. It's what makes our faith unique. Here's what God says is part A of the gospel. You can't fix yourself. Quit trying, it's impossible. Sin brings death. 
Give God his breath back. You owe him. Eternally separated. And the only way to fix it is someone die in your place. And that someone gotta be perfect. Or the payment ain't permanent. So if and when you find a perfect person, get him or her to willingly trade their perfection for your sin and death in. Clearly, since the only one that can meet God's criteria is God, God sent himself as Jesus to pay the cost for us. His righteousness, his death, functions as payment. Yes, payment. Wrote a check with his life, but at the resurrection we all cheered because that means the check cleared. Pierced feet, pierced hands, blood-stained son of man, fullness, forgiveness, free passage into the promised land. That same breath that God breathed into us, God gave up to redeem us. And anyone and everyone, and by everyone I mean everyone, who puts their faith and trust in Him, and Him alone can stand in full confidence of God's forgiveness. And here's what the promise is, that you are guaranteed full access to return to perfect unity by simply believing in Christ and Christ alone. You are receiving life. Yes. So we showed that video to the kids at camp, um, and afterwards, I also presented the gospel in my own words. My words, of course, are going to sound different than him. I pointed that out even at the time. I am not from the same culture. I am not a, a rapper and poet from Los Angeles. I'm not the same race as him. I'm not the same culture as him. And yet, I could tell by the way he talks, uh, that man is one of my brothers, yep. right? Um, he believes the same gospel I do. And so in case any of you went, well, he talked fast. I didn't hear, I didn't understand all that. I'm going to go ahead and explain it one more time. Um, for our purposes this morning, I'm just going to explain to you briefly Romans 6.23 as we close. And um, this is, actually, I didn't use this verse at camp, but I said something similar to this at camp. And I'm just going to use this verse today because it's going to be easier. Uh, Romans 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I guess I'll start with the word wages. I think everybody in this room already knows what that word means, right? Wages are what you have earned or what you deserve. When someone gives you wages, that's what you had coming to you, right? Wages are what you earned or deserve. The wages of sin is death. What you have coming to you, what you have earned, what you deserve, because you are a sinner, is death. We, every single one of us in this room who's a sinner, which is every single one of us, we don't deserve for all things to work together for our good. We don't deserve that. We deserve death. We deserve punishment and judgment for our sins. And yet God gives us a gift. Okay, so that's the, when it says, um, um, all things work together for the good of those who love God, that, that good, that's what's being talked about here. That good is a gift from God. What is it? What's the gift from God? Well, it says it's eternal life. The gift from God is living with God in goodness forever. That's the good we don't deserve. That's the gift he gives. How in the world does he do that? In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus Christ is our Lord. If you remember in the Joseph story, over and over again, it said the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. So this is our Lord up there, come down here. 
the Lord on earth, God in a body. And he died on a cross. Now, this is interesting. He did not sin, and yet he died. According to the verse, the wages of sin is death. Jesus died on a cross, very famous. You don't even have to be a Christian to have seen crucifixes all over this country. Every time you pass, you know, whatever, a Catholic church or just all over the place, right? We know that Jesus died on a cross. He died, but he didn't sin. So why did he die if the wages of sin is death? He was, he was accepting our wages, right? Not, not his own. He was taking on what we deserved, what we had earned, what was coming to us, he took. He was making, as propaganda said in the video, he was making a payment with his life on our behalf. He rose again, proving that he has the power to undo death and he extends forgiveness of sins and eternal life to all who turn from their own ways and trust in him and trust in him as the payment for their sins. So the short answer to the question that I asked earlier is heaven. Now, if you don't remember the question, I'll go ahead and re-say it. If not everybody can be vice president, if it's true that not everyone gets relief from the difficult things in this life, how can God promise things will work out for the good for those who love him? The answer is heaven. The gospel of Jesus makes a way for sinners to be promoted, not into the vice presidency, to be promoted into eternal blessing because of what Jesus did on our behalf. That is good news, and that is why it is so important to trust in Jesus. That's why it's so important to follow him, because it's the only way out of the slavery of this life, and it's the only way out of the prison that is hell. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this story and Joseph going before us and us being able to see 13 difficult years followed by you causing things to work out for his good. But I thank you for the New Testament because we can look at that through the New Testament and realize, oh, that's not just a thing that happened one time. That is the kind of thing you do writ large across the population of all the people who trust in you and love you. And so we thank you for that. Those of us who are in this room who already love you and trust you, we praise you for that and we thank you for that. And so we're in the midst of all things right now, and some of us are in the midst of good things. I'm sure some of us are in the midst of difficult things. But we look forward to when you will work out all good. And we thank you for sending Jesus Christ to make the payment so that that could be true in our lives. And for the people here who do not know you yet, I pray that they would follow you. I pray that they would trust in you. I pray that you would forgive them of their sins so that they would be brought out of that slavery and that prison. So I ask that you, by the power of your spirit, would work in their lives today. And that we, those of us who believe in you right now and those of us who are gonna believe in you real soon, together would be brothers and sisters who worship you for eternity because of what you've done for us. And so we love you and we thank you for the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.